Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Scott Neeson. And before we get to Scott, here's a few announcements. First, our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. You can go there. You can see stories that I've written. You can see stories some of the guests have written. You can see links to our social media. You can see links to our guest social media. With our social media, I'm talking about, of course, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. We have a Facebook page, Travel Tales Podcast. Follow us, like us, give us a thumbs up, tell your friends, tell your enemies. I don't care. I need the numbers. Let's bring it up. If you can do that, I'd appreciate it. On our site, you can also find links to Stitcher Radio and Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe. We're on Spotify. We're on iHeartRadio. We're basically everywhere you get your podcasts. So please subscribe to us wherever you listen. And if you can give us a good rating as well, that helps us because it boosts our presence on there and helps more people find us. So if you can do it, I'd appreciate that. And speaking of saying nice things, maybe you want to write me and say nice things. Maybe you got travel questions. Maybe you want to suggest yourself or someone else for the show. If so, you can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. Okay, let's talk about Scott Neeson. We recorded this on August 9th. It was in the early evening here in Los Angeles, which was morning in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Oh, the magic of technology. I kind of met Scott through a friend of a friend, but I'm so glad I did because his story is pretty amazing. And Scott's also one of those people who makes you feel like you haven't done much with your life. (laughs) Um, You'll hear us talk about this in the beginning of the conversation about how he dropped out of high school in Australia, ended up becoming an assistant projectionist at a drive-in movie theater, then started working for the film company, working his way up to moving to Hollywood, where he became pretty much a bigwig all through the 90s. Worked on uh, little films, you know, things like Braveheart, Titanic, things like that. Big house in the hills, cars, a boat, living large. And then he was about to leave Fox and go over to Sony. Took five weeks to travel around Southeast Asia, And he went through Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And what he saw there changed his life forever. Now, I've talked about on this show about poverty that we can see as Westerners traveling around the world and how it changes your perspective of what you need to live, how we take so much for granted. And what Scott saw at this landfill, people living in it, scavenging, children everywhere, changed him deeply. So much so that within a year, he had sold all his possessions, quit his job, and moved to Phnom Penh and started the Cambodian Children's Fund, where they work to get children out of poverty, get them in school, get them housed, clothed. Well, we'll talk about it. He's been in Cambodia since late 2004. That's nearly 17 years. And it's truly an inspiring story about someone who really wanted to help others. He saw a need and devoted his life to it. Most of us, if we do anything, we just write a check and still more people do nothing. So I was really honored to get to meet him and to chat with him. 
and to bring more attention to his amazing charity. So go to CambodianChildrensFund.org. You can get information, see photos, videos of all the work that he's been doing over there and how many people he's helped. We often think that as individuals, we can't make a difference and that we can't change lives, but we can. And Scott is a guy who's doing it. So here's my Zoom call to Cambodia and my conversation with Scott Neeson. So, Scott, how long have you been in Cambodia? Goodness, it's um, I've been my 17th year here. Arrived in 2004, um, December 2004. Yeah, I expected to stay maybe three years and just into my <laughs> 17th now. It's um, been quite an adventure. You were a high school dropout in Australia, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah, I didn't get much past a year. Never finished high school, so I dropped out in year 11. and. Um, I was considered chronic unemployed because I was growing up in a, an industrial town where the major employer was General Motors. And without my high school certificate, I couldn't get a job on, at General Motors because I thought the factory line. Uh, the government then had a job program. The job program consisted of an employer who would take you on would get half your salary paid. And so the first job was working as an assistant in the office during the day and then working projectors at night and in the evening. It was all driving movies, so it was, uh, it was a lot of fun back then. Yeah, so I'm you ran a myself. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I went, to, I went to drive-in movies, so you ran the film projector at a drive-in movies. Now here, right. I know in the U.S., that's a, or it used to be anyway, that was a, a union job. It wasn't a bad gig, that's from what right. I remember. It was both a union job and also you had to have a fireman's permit in case of a fire. And you had, yeah, but obviously, sorry, I was the assistant projectionist. I wasn't, oh. quite, I wasn't one of the elite. I was there to thread up the spools of the film and yeah, tell and- the projectionist that change over those sort of things. It was a kind of eons ago. And somehow you you worked your way up into the, the actual film company and then moved to Hollywood. Yes, I worked into uh, film programming. I moved from the country town to Sydney where I took over um, film behind for one of the major circuits. They made me uh, an offer to join distribution and production side. Um, they merged with Fox and in 93, Fox, 20th Century Fox uh, moved me to Los Angeles to run international marketing and that was where it began and I moved up the ranks there over a period of years and became president of 20th Century Fox International in um, year 2000 I believe yes wow so it was quite a quite a run and I still haven't finished high school there's hope, <laughs> there's hope out there yet <laughs> So did you actually meet uh, Rupert Murdoch? Uh, I figure yeah, I think, yeah, I would, it was still in touch, actually. It was, he's actually, since leaving Fox and starting the charity, uh, I've got to know him quite well. We don't agree on many things. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it's, odd, it's an odd him. match. No, but he's uh, in a personally very charming man, very nice family. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's uh, a strange coincidence. I was at a birthday party. Um, of a friend and he was there with his family we got talking and of course he was fascinated by the fact that I'd left um, the presidency and gone overseas to Phnom Penh and so we just kept in touch purely on a casual basis. So when you went to Phnom Penh as I understand it you were vacationing 
and yes, you're on holiday yeah. in Southeast Asia and you yeah. ended up some for somehow, I don't know if this was a bad tour company, but you ended up in a, in a garbage dump. Yeah. Well, I was, I was uh, between jobs, as they say, I'd finished my contract at 20th Century Fox. I had signed a contract to start at Sony Pictures and took five weeks. Just, I was exhausted. It was a long 10 years at 20th Century Fox. So the idea was to see most of the Buddhist monuments starting in Thailand, going to Angkor Wat, and then moving through India to do a yoga retreat way up north in uh, Rishikesh, supposedly the birthplace of yoga. So it was more of a spiritual journey before I started another long period of time at Sony Pictures. Um, and I was in Phnom Penh for a few days and a lot of, a lot of poverty in Cambodia, especially back in uh, 2003. There was a lot of street kids begging, but it was all very organised. It was where the tourists were. There were people running the kids, so kids would be given babies to go up and down the street begging or given flowers and had these stories to tell. And out of curiosity, I guess in some ways it was uh, poverty voyeurism, I, I asked them, um, an acquaintance, a friend of a friend, about is there any areas where there's uh, children or families who are tr- terribly poor but there's no, uh, no way to make money, there's no other charities there, there's no um, help, any support. And the, um, when he wrote down a, an address in Kamine, I didn't know where it was, and I took a driver translator, um, a, a person I knew, and went out there, and it was the landfill. And just stepping out of the car and seeing this place, it was, oh, my goodness, nearly 25 acres of garbage, and on it were about 1,500 children who were scavenging, and about half lived on the landfill. They'd been left there by parents or orphaned. Um, there were families living on top of the dump, and that was set really was the most appalling um, experience, the sight, the smell, the heat. And, um, yeah, it really shook me to my core. On the that one time there, uh, you know, I couldn't quite just walk away and ended up through the translator talking to one child who was walking by to see what the story was. And uh, the child was there with um, her mother and two siblings and it's just terrible state. I couldn't tell it was a boy or a girl because one tiny, tiny children that malnourish uh, with malnourishment, and they they sweat themselves in all their clothes, partly for the heat and partly because there's no place to leave your belongings. And so I got hold of the mother, and after about an hour's worth of conversation, ended up finding a place for the family to rent. Um, I arranged through my friend, the translator, to have her registered at public school. And her little sister was a very, very sick uh, girl. She was two and had a typhoid, I believe, and arranged to get her to hospital. And this whole negotiation discussion took about an hour. Um, and I arranged I'd go back to Los Angeles and send money across. And it was such a small amount of money. And that's how it all started. Well, the I, um, conditions on the landfill. The one thing, I mean, the smell is enough. I was retching, a uh, dry retching, but 
The other thing is the heat. It, it, the heat is well over 140 degrees because the landfill burns. It, the, as the garbage decomposes, it gives off methane. So there's fires happening uh, all over the place. And in some parts, the ground's like a, a lava made from garbage. Mm. And it, it's, it is molten hot. So it's uh, incredibly hot there. Then you've got the garbage trucks and the graders and all these other um, all these other machinery that's going backwards and forwards. And every now and then a kid would get killed there. And it was a miserable, miserable scene. So did you go from that? Did you still continue on to, to India? I went, yeah, I went to India but cut it short. My two weeks in India became three days and I bailed, came back. Uh, and I couldn't get out of my mind there were these kids there. And I had taken this one child off successfully and it couldn't, I mean, I had this, uh, I had this values dilemma where I had completely turned around the life of this child who was maybe who was nine years old at the time, completely turned around. And in such a significant way, she was working on this landfill, had never been to school. And now she was in school, in a home. Her younger sister was receiving treatment. I was fairly sure she would stay in school because my friend who was looking after uh, getting the money, paying the rent, was getting attendance reports. And I, I realised that um, you know, if I could make that fundamental change to one child's life, what if I did it to two children, three or five? And... Um, Living in Los Angeles, it was, you know, I could do a lot of good with a small amount of money. And uh, that's, but I did go back to Los Angeles. St- started my job at Sony, but made 11 trips back in the, my first 12 months or so, which uh, clearly I was, I was quite hooked. I was uh, yeah. quite determined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so- yeah. When I left, I didn't want to go back to Los Angeles. I really felt like this was my calling, but... Having spent, my goodness, 20, 26 years in the film business, I didn't want to have a classic midlife crisis and move to Cambodia on a whim. So I promised myself I wouldn't do anything, uh, make a decision, do anything rash until 12 months from that day. And I held to that. I sort of held to that. Mm-hmm. In that 12 months, I sold my house, most of my possessions, and was getting ready to bolt, moved into a tiny flat, yeah, so it was, um, but I didn't make any tough decisions. I assume I assume your bosses at Sony must have realized your heart wasn't in it when you were taking off Absolutely. once a month. <laughs> no, no. At one point, I think they're just glad to get me out of the office. Yeah, it was much better not to have, <laughs> yeah, to have me there. It was just not a good time for me. I, my, from the very first meeting at Sony, I realized that, goodness, I couldn't go back into that, that world again. Well, I know a lot of people, and for those of us who travel a lot, I'm sure you had been pretty well traveled before that trip. Yes. And I've seen, you know, I had been to I've been to Cambodia. I've I've only been to Siem Reap. I didn't go to Phnom Penh. You know, no. I went to I went to Angkor Wat, and you know, but I did uh, the hotel. The hotel did take us. It was an American couple running this hotel, and they were working with uh, a local village, and they took us to that village, and you know, is. It was hard, you know, and I've seen slums in Africa and um, yes. India. India yeah. is a hard, hard, hard place. It um, is indeed. Why did, 
Why do you think the situation that you saw in Cambodia, how was that different from them, say, the poverty you saw in India or in another place? Yeah, well, yeah, it, I'd seen poverty in India, a lot of uh, developing countries. I hadn't seen anywhere that was more squalid than actually living in a landfill. And it was really the, uh, the lack of any kind of hope of getting off there. There was no opportunities, no hope. Uh, if it was just poverty, then I would, could just get money. But this was small. It was the knowledge that I could pour money in and nothing would change. The kids would still be there. The, the parents would abandon children, leave them there. Orphan kids would still go there. There's terrible risks, of course, from people like traffickers, um, robbers. It was very lawless. And the, the strange thing was that the thing that really hit a chord was when I was on this landfill, the children who came up to me uh, after a while, they began to trust me and came up to me quite regularly. They would always uh, they'd say something, which means please take me to study. They rarely would ask for money or anything material. And I couldn't quite get over the fact that so many of these children would have that foresight to see that education would get off the landfill. And it was such a long-term plan for such small children to ask to study. I thought they'd ask for food because they were earning such a little amounts of money or a place to, uh, a place to rest or clothes. But it was always, please take me to study. And it's really hard to say no to that. That was yeah. very hard. So well, that's what, what struck me the most. Well, one of the things uh, I remember the the couple in Sim Reap was telling me that it is not a given. You know, we take for granted, of course, in, in America, that everybody up to 18, you get an education. You know, the, the state yeah, will let you, will have you go to school. But there, you know, maybe a, I mean, you have to pay to go to school. And, and if uh, maybe you have three kids, maybe you can only afford to send one to school. That's right. And school's a half day. Uh, and once you hit the age, once you're in year 10 or once you hit 14 or 15, if the family's poor, there's an expectation you'll start to help the family uh, climb out of poverty. If they've got a family debt, uh, if someone's sick, then you want to help your own family. The right. education is improving enormously, but um, it's still a very hard uh, decision if you've got four or five children. So the, what? The kids want to go to school, though. I mean, yeah, I would I say, there were children on the landfill. They would work one day to earn money to go to school the next day and then go back. And I just, oh, that broke my heart. I mean, such a determination to get into school, something that would, I'd certainly take for granted. Have you, did you go back to Hollywood and then try to drag some, you know, use your influence in Hollywood to maybe bring more attention to it, maybe bring uh, some celebrities no, there or something like that? For some reason, I had a very compartmentalised I don't think uh, people would have understood my passion towards it because it wasn't just about raising money for a, a particular charity. It was a very personal thing. There was, uh, there was no need for money because it was all my own money and I was earning large enough salary to support you know, a dozen kids into school or 20 kids in school. And awareness didn't really count very much and as you know, there's not a lot of focus in Hollywood outside of uh, the immediate area, and certainly not internationally. Mm -hmm. uh, there was really no need to. 
And when I would tell friends about it, they uh, looked at me like I'd lost a, lost a few screws. And they could have been right too. It was, uh, so no, it was more, it was a private thing. As I say, I wasn't trying to raise funds. It was going to be, it was always going to be about having my own money. Uh, that was the original plan. I had enough money. I worked out that if I sold my house and all my other assets, then I could afford to run the charity for at least 20 years, provided that the number of children never grew above 60 students. And that way I could fund it myself. I had the whole financial plan and I would work two or three days a week with the charity and take off on my imaginary motorbike, go around <laughs> into China and it would be a wonderful life. But never quite worked out that way. <laughs> so uh, is it safe to say, did you have a family of your own in, in the States? That no, you had to, I didn't. Okay. I was, that uh, makes was, it easier. Uh, it's, oh, I was a classic uh, Los Angeles type executive at a Porsche SUV and house in Brentwood and all the premieres and because it was international, going to the international film festival. So I had a really good life there, yeah. a really yeah. good life. And in fairness too, if I was married with children, I could never have made this, this move. It would take a very uh, understanding family and yeah. a degree, I guess a degree of irresponsibility on my part to expect them to move here. What was the reaction amongst the local government for this, uh, you know, this this tall uh, white man to come in there and start, maybe uh, you're going to ruffle some feathers and come across some government officials who may not want you there. Well, uh, generally, because I was uh, in this one area, the uh, the landfill, I didn't. They didn't really care. There wasn't uh, much attention either way. It was only until a local newspaper. They, they, they took a story from the LA Times and ran it on the front page of the headline, um, a rich man walking non-pen streets. And after that, I had so many problems, security problems, and some government officials wanted money back then. And uh, I didn't pay up and ended up having two full-time security guards. It became a little more, um, it was much higher risk. It also took the enjoyment out of it, obviously, because I was pretty much free to that point to do what I wanted. I was able to get down to the landfill, work with the locals and uh, generally with the local authorities, the village chiefs down there, and it was going well. How long um, did this, how long did they, ha- did you have to have the security? I still got them today, but today wow. it's not about, well, today it's more about the, uh, the, the work we do with the, the government. We have, uh, we have our own child protection unit, which is separate to the education piece. It's a unit where we have uh, essentially a partnership with Cambodian National Police and it's investigating crimes against children. It's a national charity and it's all investigations, all serious child abuse cases are investigated and it's three very experienced investigators from Australia uh, assisted by British police sometimes FBI, and it's to up the level of investigation and prosecution of people who will abuse children And because conviction rate was low. There's very little um, resources available outside of Phnom Penh. Yeah, the conviction rate was concerningly low. And the government, to their credit, they, they allowed this partnership where we could second police into the child protection unit 
under the, uh, under the training of the overseas investigators, and this worked the charm. The conviction rate since we started uh, eight years ago is now 86%, up from 12 13%. It's running 86%. Wow. Because if, if the in terms of trafficking, isn't that mostly, uh, I mean, uh, were these about more domestic? These were about, uh, to be graphic, uh, this past month, uh, it, was, it was mainly uh, rapes, attempted rapes. There was eight murders of children under the age of 10, gang rapes, and uh, attempted trafficking, yes. So the then, there's not a lot, nearly as much trafficking as uh, the old days. The government's really, really come down hard on trafficking. Yeah, because then you you run into some real international bad guys, you know. Well, <laughs> uh, in fairness, we've had some very senior people who've done very bad things, and the government's never intervened. Hmm. They've all ended up going to court and going to jail, and including a life sentence. Wow. No one's exempt from that. Yeah, there's no one exempt. Is um, the first year you went out there was it 2005 permanently? Uh, no, I moved here in December 2004. So, yeah, the first, yeah, and that was, I hit the ground running. Wow. I haven't wow. Still haven't stopped. So, those first children, some are grown now. Uh, well, you know, the first ended up, we grew from 50 to 200 to 300. We've now got uh, 2,000 kids now, ages, um, preschool. It's actually nursery right through to university grads. And the, the most uh, proud statistic is that of the kids, the first 200 children that came off of the landfill, uh, 70% have gone through university, including the very first girl I found that day. She did a major in uh, management and finance. So she's was a graduate there. 70%, I could, couldn't believe it. That's and great. And it's going up to, of course, that's the... As our education um, resources improve, we're getting more more children going into university. The families can see that it's a good long-term investment. And I've learned a lot along the way about keeping kids in school, working with families, suspending uh, judgment, those sort of things. Have they, uh, any of the children come back and, and worked with you? And Yeah, quite a number have come back to work with us, especially in the education department because that's, uh, that was their passion and they want to ensure other kids in that area also get the same education. And they're really good too. They're really good workers. We, we have a very good education program. But we also build a parallel program of leadership. So it's talking about self-esteem, public speaking, empathy, ensuring that they have that compassion towards people in similar situations, uh, public speaking and uh, human rights, uh, critical thinking, all the things that we may take for granted. So that runs alongside education. The third piece of it, which is a smaller piece but very effective, is we have a, a granny program, a grandmother program. And the initial reason was I, I had to support the grandmothers because they were living in desperate circumstances. Um, they were begging on the landfill. I mean, it was so far down the economic scale, but they would be begging from other scavengers. So we, I, I did it on my own because it was outside of our mission back then, was to help them out every week with money and some food. But it became part of the leadership program because, because I figured that 
if you're a youth, are you, you're a youth and you and you want to have genuine uh, responsibility, then what better way to do it than to make you responsible for a person? So the youth in groups of three or four visit the grandmother two, three times a week. They uh, check on how she's doing. They check uh, she's got food, her health is generally okay. And in return, she'll talk about the Cambodian culture, the values, because that was all wiped out back in the Khmer Rouge days. So on the whole, our youth here have very little understanding because their parents were never really exposed to family values, Khmer tradition, um, the structure of families. So the grandmothers, and there's a few grandfathers, a small number of grandfathers, the wonderful mentors. So we call it the wisdom program, for want of a better word. But the grandmothers are doing their part as well. And on the whole, these kids come out so well-rounded when they leave CCF, when they leave the organization. It is amazing when you think, I remember seeing something about um, that, you know, the Khmer Rouge and, and during, I guess, 75, 1975 or 76 around there. Yes. That I think it was 20 million people were it, killed? Or? It was 2 million people, which represented about 20% of the whole population. Over 20% of the population was killed in a three-year period. And, and they, it was like the whole generation was lost. It was, and they targeted the educated. So they took it anyone that had gone beyond high school, spoke a second language, wore, wore glasses, wore eyeglasses, um, and anyone that had government work. So at the end of it all, there was a complete lack of uh, people able to take on professional jobs. I believe there was only four or five doctors survived by lying about what they did. The, the, the thing that they did, which I think is having even more impact today, is they, uh, they would take a family and split them up so every family member would be in a different part of Cambodia, never to see each other again. And I think. In my opinion, that's done more long-term damage. The fact that children were, say, six years old and taken from their parents and put into these work camps. And when the Khmer Rouge were ousted in 79, the kids uh, didn't know where to go, didn't know where they lived, didn't know how to get back home, and they just had to survive on their own. And that, those same children, of course, are the parents of the children today. On the, and it must be so damaging. Very, very damaging to have that level of um, abandonment, um, family displacement, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress. Not just in your experience at the uh, at the the Children's Fund, but the country in general. How has it changed? I know Sim Reap has gotten much more uh, touristy. I do know that much. Yeah, much. Well, it wasn't until about eighteen months ago when COVID <laughs> gone a little bit the other way. Yeah. The country's been uh, improving remarkably well. It's had good economic growth. Uh, the government's worked on uh, down getting rid of corruption as best they can. They're working quite hard on that. And the, I mean, goodness me, when I was here, there was two sets of traffic lights. Now they're talking, there's two, there's ring roads around the city. Uh, the city itself is booming, tons of investment money coming in. So it's uh, changed a lot. It's still third world, still a developing country. Got a long way to go, but we're certainly on the right track. COVID knocked the heck out of uh, CMRE, down uh, 90 something percent. 
It's a very yeah. sad place right now. Businesses closed, restaurants, hotels, they're all shuttered up. How big of a city is Phnom Penh? Phnom Penh is about 2 million people living here. 2 million, okay. It's about 2 million now, yeah. It's, uh, it's grown quickly. A lot of urbanization going on right now. I liked uh, what I read about your story. Uh, it's not just, it's more about just sending kids to school. Because oh, yeah. because yes. you can send so you can send a kid school. you can send a kid to school, but if they don't have something, if they're malnourished, they're not going to learn anything. If if they're no. if they're if they're that, thirsty, if they don't have drinking water, they're not going to learn. And I was a little naive going in because I was initially thinking how easy it was to get these kids off the landfill into school, but the the absentee rate was uh, high and getting higher all the time. It was increasing. Uh, 30%, 40%. And it was only until I started talking to families and understanding the fundamental reasons of why they weren't coming to school. And then addressing those meant adding uh, supplementary programs. And obviously the, the, the first thing was that when the child goes to school, that family doesn't have an income. They've lost one income. And so their siblings are going hungry. The, maybe the family can't pay the rent. There's certainly less food on the table. And even if the parents don't insist the child comes back, you know, the child is very tied to the family. They'll rather work than see their family go hungry. So I put in place a program whereby if the child has good attendance, we support the family with rice, sometimes pay rent for them. So they're at least even and that grew into another program where perfect attendance has one reward level and it goes from there. So that was the first lesson. And the second one was uh, sickness, illness. And children had to stay home to look after sick grandparents um, or sick siblings, parents. And that started our uh, health care. We had a medical clinic, a very small medical clinic back then, so that the parents could go there, the children could go there. We would take care of them. So the child could study, and the other reasons of and the other reasons looking after younger siblings. So they often when the parents would go to work, they'd leave their three, two, three, four-year-olds running around on the perimeter of the landfill on their own. And very often the children we had would want to stay home and look after them. And the answer to that was a daycare program, which then became a nursery. So we looked after those kids and the kindergarten feeds children into public school and it's become more of a process now. And the final, the final piece, final major piece was debt because the, most families there moved from the countryside because they, they borrowed money for medical reasons and the interest rates for the, the very poor, they start at around 10% per month. So a $300 debt, you'll be paying for a dollar and $2 a day, just an interest, and that's you know, more than half of what you would make. And there was no way out of that. And you couldn't stay in the countryside. You would have sold all your assets. The work in the countryside is seasonal, so the whole family would move into this landfill. And that was a place where everyone in the family could work to once you're age seven or eight older, you could help provide income and you could work every day. It was tragic. So we put together a small amount of money at the time so that we could pay off 
the lenders and then the families could pay us back at either zero or bank interest rates, and that made a massive difference. So in effect, right now we have uh, absentee rates of under 5% out of all children, all grades. So it's, um, it's less than most of the developed countries. I'm going to tell you my Cambodian debt story that, that I'm sure is very common to you, but I've never forgotten it. So the, time I, the first time I went to Southeast Asia, I, went, I found myself in Luang Prabang, Laos, yes. which, yes. which is big on the, uh, the backpacker circuit. And I met some, uh, an American guy in a pub there, and he was uh, you know, traveling all around the world. And he made a vow that each country he went to, he would uh, do something to help out whatever local. And uh, he had just come from Cambodia. And we had talked, we were talking about this and that for a while. And he just said out of nowhere, oh, I bought a girl in Cambodia. And I said, what? Oh, my. And, yeah. uh, and he said, the family couldn't pay a debt. And uh, so we tracked her down and, and we paid this debt and brought the girl back to her, to her family. Mm-hmm. And I think they found her somewhere in Phnom Penh, probably not in a nice place. Yeah. And the, very, the very best indentured servitude. Where yeah. It's a maid at the very best. Yes. 14, 14 years old. Yes. And uh, I said, so he tells me this whole thing and I'm wide eyed at this whole story. And I said, just out of curiosity, how, how much was the debt? And he said, well, in U.S. dollars, it came to about $41. Goodness me. And, and, uh, and 20% per month on that. Yeah. And the problem is, of course, when you can't pay that, the principal increases and the daily interest goes up. I met this grandmother just there quite recently, and she had these two lovely children six and seven, and she was living in the most abject swallow. It was just terrible. And it turned out that she had one of the, the, the father ran away, the mother died in a traffic accident, and when one of the children got sick, she ran up a debt of $200 in medical care, which, of course, by our US standards is next to nothing. It's a doctor's visit. Yeah. But the little girl was in hospital, so with a $200 debt, 20% interest per month. She was paying $40 a month in interest and she was getting on. So she had to go out scavenging every night just to pay this debt. And um, yeah, obviously I paid the debt there and then and um, added more. She started a very small business so she could sell groceries out the front of her house. And what a wonderful lady. She's so happy. Wonderful woman. Both children are in school. Who are people paying these debts to? Is it to a bank, to the government, or no, loan sharks? No, no. It's, uh, it's the, they are what we would call loan sharks, but they're basically known as community lenders. There's usually one person in uh, that area who's got the money and they'll go out and lend it and lend it to people in those conditions and they'll charge as much as they can get away with and they intimidate people into paying. Mm. And uh, people tend to pay it off. It's uh, it's. The, too frightened not to. Yeah. Yeah, it's just called community lending. Mm. Because so, the people, they can't go to banks and microfinance because they have no assets. There's no collateral to put against the debt, so they really aren't forced to pay it. So I would think in, the, in, in all the aspects of what you're doing, the hardest thing would be finding housing. I mean, yes, I mean, it was it was a real issue for us, especially as the cost of homes and the cost of real estate is going up very quickly. 
that used to be an issue. We had a partnership. We have a partnership right now with an organization based in Vancouver, World Housing. And they supply us with funding and we build communities in the around the, around the landfill area. And so far we've built just on 600 of these houses. Now, we, we the house costs on average $2,500 US, but that includes uh, putting in utilities, drainage. Uh, we have fenced-off areas, gardens, small gardens, and small classrooms, and they work out so well. So these, these are all little communities of maybe 15 to 30 houses each, and they're very aspirational, and I want to keep them that way. So <laughs> if you keep your child in school or at least encourage them to go to school and there's no abuse at home, either verbal uh, substance abuse, then you, have act, then you can apply, get one of these homes, and that's done wonders. It's uh, they're dotted all around now. So if you look at a satellite map around the landfill, the little white dots everywhere. So we built over six hundred with their help. The most recent one was a jam. It's fifty houses, and it's for females only, from four years old to seventy something. And that's obviously for safety, security reasons, but allows us to get all the foster children who have no parents at risk, who come from sometimes government agencies. Um, they get them into the cared for by grandmothers, occasionally single mothers. It's got classrooms, libraries, sports area. And that was another World Housing Initiative. They've done wonders there. Yeah, it's a real joy now. It's, it's really changed the outlook, really changed the outlook. And it's still the whole area is still predominantly uh, female-led. Um, 85% of households are single mothers down here. Do you find in terms of education, do they approach educating girls differently than boys? Is it easier to get one to stay in school more than the other? Oddly, we've, we've reversed the trend here. We, we, have, um, we start off roughly 50-50 boys, girls, and by the time they hit high school, university, it's just over two-thirds girls. Uh, the boys tend to drop out. The girls have dropped, uh, the boys, sorry, the boys drop out at roughly the same as national level. It's very hard to keep them in school when there's no role models from so few fathers around and there's uh, the appeal of drugs, um, working, becoming independent. The girls, however, they've seen, I think, what's happened. They see what their mothers have been through because of the lack of education, domestic violence, uh, they've been extremely impoverished, and they're quite determined, um, one, to help the mother get out of that situation, and two, make sure that their children don't do the same. And the university graduates are nearly 75% uh, young women, 25% young men. What is, are the, it's the opposite trend of most uh, most yeah. developing countries, and it's it's good for the next generation. What are their most common uh, lines of study, and where do they go work oh, usually after? That? My goodness, uh, there's one girl just finished a uh, young woman now. <laughs> uh, she was on the landfill when I first came here. She's degree in civil engineering. Uh, we've got several architects. Interesting is a lot of opted for psychology and social work. 
to help their own communities, education, finance, management, tourism. We have five studying on scholarships in University of Melbourne in Australia, um, one doing their master's in Paris, one of a, a great, I keep on saying boy, young man, yeah. He's, uh, in Paris and uh, remarkable but he's done another in Tokyo with an engineering electrical engineering so they're wow so hard yes these and they're all on scholarships have got themselves you know, as you can see very proud of these, these yeah uh, aspirations of success stories it's got to be hard to you know, video all the before and afters of the <laughs> as the kids were found and where they are now it's uh, my own bit of inspiration it's hard to keep them down on the farm, though, once they've seen uh, Tokyo and oh, Paris. Uh, you know. Yes, yeah. They, well, <laughs> I think the funny thing is they, 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 they want to come back to families and they're familiar, and um, they, they always come back. Family is very important, yeah. not to mention the food. They do miss no, their, of course, uh, yeah. I miss it. Food. I miss that, for sure. Yes. Uh, what do you miss, if anything? I mean, it, if there's those days you wake up and go, boy, I could go for something, whether it's uh, something from Australia or from here. I mean, is there something well, you really miss? Yeah, there is. the one thing that oddly I miss is uh, I had a beautiful boat in the Marine Del Rey. Oh. Uh, lovely big motorboat. So every Sunday, my friends and I, my buddies, would pile onto the boat. First of all, we'd play paddle tennis on Venice Beach, which was great. We're a uh, um, very aggressive, competitive bunch. Then go on the boat and go out to Catalina, drop anchor and sit around, drink a few beers, jump in the water. Yeah, I love that on Sundays. That was my Sunday ritual. I miss that. Here, of course, Sundays, I'm down on the outskirts of a landfill, a former landfill. It's not quite the same. Do you ever get a dip? Just recently, and it was down recently, this child had gone missing. I realised at that very moment my friends were at the Academy Awards and I was kind of thinking, oh, here I am, you know, knee-deep in garbage and sewage and everything else, and they're in the Academy Awards. But good, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change anything. I had dogs. I miss my dogs, giving away my dogs, but they were the main things. Yeah. And every now and then there's that I miss the safety of having um, 911. If you get sick, you can get really fast, good medical care, uh, police response, those sort of things. It's a little different here. You just got to make sure you look out for yourself. How has, as we know, the last year and a half, the world has changed quite dramatically. I don't know, in, in tourist places like Siem Reap, they've, they've been hit hard. But how has it affected Cambodia in general and the area? Well, the government has kept... Very strict controls. They've got an enormous, a very large percentage of the population vaccinated. They're well ahead of uh, most other countries. So the virus has been somewhat contained, but the economic impact with businesses closed, schools are still closed. Uh, of course, tourists are just not coming in. It's very much tourist driven. Um, it's really hit economically. But the numbers of COVID um, cases is minuscule compared to, say, like Thailand, which is just out of control. 20,000 cases a day in Thailand. Um, it's about a th- less than a 1,000 a day here. The reopening non Pen because the, most of the adult population is vaccinated for doing students over the next month. So they've handled that well, but the economic impact. And strangely enough, real tragedy was that the 
the people that we work with, the garbage scavengers, and they go out in the evenings now to find recyclables around town. They have they've had no income now since January because all recyclables get sent to Vietnam for for um, sorting, recycling, and the borders have been closed, and they're going to stay closed too because Vietnam and Thailand are a mess in terms of uh, COVID and Delta variant. And until the borders open, the communities that we work with cannot earn any income. We're, the, we're now the sole source of uh, food right now. We do food packages to nearly 1,000 families every week. So it's pretty dire, pretty dire situation. Oh, man. Well, do you work with um, local uh, food suppliers? Did you get them on board? Is the government helping with that? The government, uh, we get large donations of food, rice, cooking oils. Uh, we've had the government's been down, vaccinated the, all the animal, most of the adult population, all those that wanted it. Uh, but in most cases, we, we buy rice. Uh, it's for us, we get a very good rate. We're buying 200 tons of rice at a time, and we get a lot of donations in from various uh, various people. And of course, we're still helping. Do you ever get some time off? I enjoy it. Uh, no, no, not really. No, I mean, I, I love what I do. <laughs> I love what I do, and I love seeing the results and being amongst the community. So I don't do well with time off. I do like getting. I used to like getting up to see a marine, but I can't. It's closed off. With uh, they had an outbreak of Delta variant, so they're closed off for a while. What about your uh, social life there? I mean, you obviously <laughs> yeah. stand out amongst the community. Um, yeah. Have you have you found a, a, any like a circle of friends or something? Yeah, I've got a good circle of friends, both uh, expat, small circle, trusted circle of expats, and uh, Cambodians as well. Some very smart, very, very good Cambodians. So we catch up uh, whenever we can. But generally, I'm a bit of a, a bit more isolated. I don't get home till late once I've been in the community. So I like to try and scrub myself clean and relax <laughs> when I get home. How long does it take to find one child and watch their growth through? I mean, it could be 16 years with a kid, right? Yeah. I mean, it could be that long. Is there, a, is there a monetary amount that you tell when, you, when donors are interested and they say, if I want to sponsor someone, does yeah. it go by child or do you, they, is it like a lump sum or how does that work? No, well, we have a, a sponsorship program. I started it when I first arrived and it, it's, it's, a, it's somewhat unique and we, we limit it to one sponsor for one child and the sponsor is required to keep in touch with the child. It's part of the agreement, and it's quite it's relatively expensive compared to the traditional uh, traditional child sponsorship. It's one hundred and fifty dollars a month, and the, the sponsor uh, we like them to write at least once a month. You know, the child doesn't have a lot of uh, has very little experience with adult role models, so. We encourage regular correspondence, uh, video calls, uh, that sort of communication. It becomes sort of part of the family via, you know, via electronic means, swapping <laughs> pictures and drawings and birthday greetings and that sort of thing. So that's the sponsorship program. I initially did it less for the money, more because I really wanted my friends in Los Angeles to see what was going on, let them sort of. Um, get, a, get an idea of the situation and how amazing these kids were, how eager to study, how open they were. 
and that's how it all started. So it's expanded now. We have most kids have sponsors. There's only about, goodness, I think 200 now that left unsponsored as new kids come in, but it's been a great program. I love the exchange of emails, especially in the early days, but <laughs> just such black comedy. They really were. There was one, one case of child work and talking about the family life and the U.S. family wrote back with a photograph of their Labrador and, and you know, the yard, everything else, and they asked the child, do you have a pet dog? And the child wrote back, I always remember this, um, I had a dog called Lucky, but my grandparents ate him. They said, <laughs> they said he was delicious, but I miss him. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What a clash of cultures came yeah. from that <laughs> uh, Oh, boy. A, a subsequent one, I saw a, a, a U.S. couple had sent photographs of their garden and the child had written back saying, wow, you have a beautiful house. And the couple in America wrote back saying, um, thank you for liking our house. And <laughs> that's actually our tool shed. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it amazing though, the perspective though, that you get and that we all get from traveling. And I, and I think that yeah. it is, it is very much affected how I live in America. Oh, and I've, li- I've lived here, I lived here my whole life, but since traveling a lot around the world in the last 20 years, I live much smaller. I use yes. much less energy, less water. Yeah, I want less. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, I mean, I found in uh, Los Angeles, the more I got, the unhappier I became at. It was, it was a burden. It was like carrying around uh, whether it's mortgages, multiple vehicles. It was just, it was all just uh, more of a burden. What I owned ended up owning me. I was working for all the stuff I owned. Yeah, and also that world perspective changes so much. You learn about what really makes you happy, whether it's family, uh, giving back, uh, various social causes. There's a whole world out there, you know, and I, I tell our students, save up and go overseas, just have a look, look around, see how other cultures live. I always ask this for people who work with charities and, and, and see such so much working against you. How do you keep doing this? Time after time, and and everything. Every time you think you're gaining ground, there's some kind of new. Hey, we saved this one kid, and now here's ten more coming in. How do you keep mm-hmm. from getting overwhelmed, and how do you keep hope? There's well, we have a a large surplus of hope just by you know, we keep. Well, I keep my focus on the successes. Uh, so after a series of you know, extremely difficult times, whether there's been um, children have got sick and died or some other tragedy. Uh, the best thing is, to, again, to look at what has been done. The fact we've got nearly 300 of these students now through uh, university. We've got a medical facility that treats 30,000 people a year. And, of course, uh, the real joy is not the statistics as much as the individuals who would have otherwise died because of chronic illnesses or lack of surgery, and families who moved out of the area because their children have graduated university, bought back the land that they lost um, through debt, all those things, those things, and seeing 
younger kids in kindergarten who are no longer at risk. Those are the things that keep me going. I've always said about people who work with other human beings in charities and, and do social work and whether it's therapists or things like that. And it almost, uh, not to dismiss people who work, uh, you know, I've done stuff for the environment and, and animal mm-hmm. causes, but those things never let you down. You know, a tree is never going to let you down or a coral reef or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, an endangered animal, a rhino. But uh, people constantly do. You could help them a lot and then they still will mess up because we're imperfect. Yeah. But um, I always feel the other way around. I, I look at, say, uh, the coral reefs or the rhinos. It makes it so sad to see that there are so much poaching of rhinos and it's going on unabated. And to me, the environment seems like a losing battle, and I admire those people that can stick to it. I really do. I feel like it's uh, that's more of a losing battle. We've, got, um, we've kept so many kids, uh, far more than have been lost along the way. Um, you just yeah, try and take the tragedies step by step and really look at the successes day in, day out. And we now have, a, as I say, with 70% going through to university, it's uh, we, for every, you know, every one we lose, we've got two that make the way through. So what other, other than Cambodia, would you say is, is improving? Are there any other places in the region that you've seen some growth in the last 15 years that you're going, you know, that country's doing it right, and this country, maybe not so much. <laughs> you know, certainly not in Indochina. As you know, uh, Myanmar has slipped backwards in terms of yeah. human rights. Thailand's a bit of a mess. I can't uh, the, the free and fair election things out the window. Vietnam, Vietnam remains uh, firmly communist, and there's a lot of headbutting with China. Uh, so, no, I think Cambodia really stands out in terms of its growth looking at 6 7% economic growth in infrastructure. So I am biased, but there's not a lot of competition in this part of the, the, the region. <laughs> in, the way. in Indochina, there's not much competition at all. If people, wanna, if people are going to, if things open up again, which I, we all desperately hope they will, can they uh, come see your organization and see what you're doing? Yeah, if they get, get in contact by email, go to uh, either our website or um, email through the website. We don't, obviously, we're a working operation, so we don't have too many people coming into the schools, but there's still plenty to see there in the different areas, communities, the grandmother programs. It's quite inspiring. How much of your time is spent fundraising? And have, do you, did you, uh, even before uh, COVID, did you go around the world and try to? Yeah, before COVID, I was traveling quite a lot. I was going to the different. Uh, fundraising uh, countries, primarily the US, to do the fundraising. Now it's online. But I found people have been surprisingly supportive even during the COVID times, especially in the US, especially in the US where I hear that, you know, I know how difficult things are in the US. I can't imagine what they must be around the landfill area where I am. Yeah. Very very compassionate. Yeah. Yeah. I think... But I think what it taught, well, some people went the other direction, but uh, what it taught a lot of people here, I think, and maybe around the world, that when when they've been confined and locked in and quarantined, that maybe we are all kind of intertwined. And maybe we, if we don't look after each other, because a lot mm-hmm. of governments failed around the world in, in handling things, oh, and, yeah. and, they, and they realized that, hey, maybe our government doesn't care about us that much. 
mm-hmm. and they were relying. They they had one idea in their head and going, you know, it's really kind of up to us to look after one another. And it's good to see people spend time with a bit of self-reflection, which is, was probably overdue in many cases. I, mean, I was probably the prime candidate for not having a sense of uh, self-awareness, um, thinking that the harder I worked and the more I got, the happier I'd become. Uh, but to have that time in lockdown, I think, changed a lot of people's perspectives on what really matters. So where do you, what are your goals for the next five and, and 10 years? We, well, the main thing for me right now is succession planning. I want to make sure that if anything happens to me, it'll continue because there are those who are two, three years old who've been, uh, who've arrived with us from government agencies. They're on a promise um, to go all the way through to university. That's what we commit to the students who come in if they have the academic ability and the ambition. So it's, you know, we've got to be around for a very long time. I'd like to see, because of the, the, the statistical successes in terms of education, domestic violence, healthcare, I'd like to see the, the, the model we've created get replicated in another area where there is um, fractured communities, maybe war-torn, um, disenfranchised, hopelessness, but it's better done by someone who's got more energy and more... Um, <laughs> more energy than I have. I'd love to see that happen. But at the moment, it's really getting in the funds to make sure we can sustain, keep these kids in school, keep the parents as healthy as possible. Uh, Is your plan to stay there for the rest Uh, of your life? Yes and no. I'd like to spend time out of the country, maybe three, four months of the year, spend time back, certainly in Los Angeles, which I I do miss. I had a very good, good circle of friends, good life over there and maybe someplace quiet by, um, by a lake or river somewhere. <laughs> so I can work remotely for three, four months of the year. Well, let's get to the fun stuff then. To uh, wrap, Let's get to your, uh, the craziest thing you've eaten over there. Oh, my. Um, <laughs> here there's been tarantula. Um, oh. The, yeah, they have deep fried tarantula. It was horrible. It's as bad as it sounds. <laughs> And you eat them like crabs, so you break them open and suck out the meat. They're uh, uh, through the delicacy. Oh, ooh. my goodness. And the smell is appalling. So tarantula <laughs> would be pretty much top of the list. That's uh, a good answer. Oh, that's horrible. The, uh, how about the craziest uh, plane or train journey you've ever taken? Uh, plane or train journey? Oh, the plane journey when I went to on my 40th birthday, flying into Kathmandu in bad weather, and I had no idea that, it, oh, my God, the plane, this rickety old plane, and the pilots <laughs> look about there 12 years old. And it, you go over the mountain, and suddenly does almost a nosedive to get down to the, um, the strip, the landing strip. It's horrendous. Yeah, so it, was, uh, and it was like a, yeah, it's like cattle truck. How about uh, illnesses or injuries? Have you ever had to go to a, a hospital there or anywhere? Did you ever hurt I yourself? Had, oh, my goodness. I've had a dengue fever, which is mosquito-borne and very nasty, pneumonia. And I had them together, so I had to get taken out to a hospital in Thailand at the time, uh, labyrinthitis. I've had a whole list of them here. But touch wood, I've got a good immune system now. But wow, the yeah. The immune system of a mule, I think, it's uh, – I'd probably get food poisoning now. I've been exposed to it for a long time. Oh, man. I had a uh, 
Yeah, we've had a few dengue fever stories on this one, and it sounds oh, it sounds horrible. bad. It is massive. It stays with you, fever. right? It, it, yeah, it lasts it, a while. It can, and if you have a very bad fever, it can damage your uh, renal system. Once it's mm. uh, serious, but I had a, a more light case. There's four types of dengue. I think mine was the milder version, but I wouldn't <laughs> want to get it severe. No. Do you provide? Um, Medical care for people who need it, or do they? Is for the people in the area, the, uh, for the, yeah. our community, about twelve thousand. We have our medical clinic. We have four doctors, and we've been given uh, some terrific equipment. We can do X-rays, ultrasounds, um, and we work with the public hospitals for surgeries. So we're seeing about thirty thousand people a year right now through the medical clinic, and these are the poorest of the poor people that couldn't otherwise afford treatment. Right. Okay, finally, give me your scariest um, scariest incident with uh, the police or the Army officials or any kind of government official, Border oh, Patrol, uh, anything. Um, that would have been in Indonesia when there were still some military coups and other things going on, and I snuck into a particular area where there was a a uh, bit of conflict going on, and I got I got caught and uh, put into immigration prison for a while, and spent oh. uh, two days there teaching the locals, uh, the, the guards there, the police there, um, English, and they <laughs> up and let, they let me out after a while. Oh my god! Yeah. Well, that's frightening. That's a pretty good story. That was my backpacking time. And another time yeah. again, taken to the immigration jail when I arrived into India. Because the travel agent got all my documents mixed up and I didn't have a visa and you know, it was a long, <laughs> long evening. I spent, okay, I spent actually in, in, I was in, put into transit eventually for two days because I couldn't get a ticket out. You couldn't leave to go and buy a ticket and uh, you couldn't, um, I mean, I just, just survived on wherever the local shops in the Delhi airport were serving. So that was another <laughs> scary time. There's some shirts that have been in there for three weeks, stuck in there, just in transit. Oh, no. Yeah, no way, no money to move and no way of buying a ticket out. Oh, that's frightening. It is. It's, yeah. Uh, we might as well wrap up the recording here. I wanted to ask you what I ask all, all my guests as a final question. What do you think, all the, the travel and what you've seen around the world, what has it taught you as a person? What have you learned? How has it changed you? The one thing that the most remarkable change, uh, and this is coming from a position, a very uh, powerful position in Hollywood, is how much power we, how much we are empowered to help others. I never quite realised that, even though I could run a studio, but I could change the course of human lives uh, with no experience in philanthropy, and we all have it in us. It was only until I was facing the child eyeball to eyeball. Um, that I got rid of all the prejudices I had against charities. You know, I don't know where my money's going. Uh, it's not my responsibility. It's on, it's on the other side of the world. But when you're face-to-face with that child, it's all out the window. And it was as much my surprise at how little it takes to help um, um, that brought me here as, as actually seeing the, the level of squalor. It really was. It was knowing that I could do something and then, being faced with my own values about whether I walk away or whether I stay. That's fantastic. Well, give us the uh, the website one more time and where people Cambodian, can learn more. Cambodian Children's 
fund.org.org. Okay. Yes. Super. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Thank you thank so you. much for Thanks doing for this. Thank you for having Thank you very much. Yeah, sure. Hang on for a second. I'm going to stop the recording, but uh, I appreciate you doing this. And uh, hopefully one day I'll get to see you in person and see the work you do. So. Yes, please. You're welcome anytime. Scott Neeson, everyone. 